Welcome to part two of this podcast with Drs. Alan Bonder and Juan Pablo Arab on alcohol use disorder and the treatment of alcohol-related liver disease. But my next question is, is, all those prescriptions and all those, you know, all this time that you spend with patients, do you have, for example, a multidisciplinary clinic where you have hand-to-hand with an addiction psychiatrist, or basically are you handling all these prescriptions on your own and following those side effects and everything on your own? <clears throat> we are developing an uh, ALD clinic. It has been challenging because the insurance issues and how to cover those things. I would say that the ideal scenario is having uh, integrated clinics where you will see the patient uh, the same day uh, from a liver perspective and from an addiction perspective. Indeed, there is some uh, a paper that have shown that a patient that are followed from, from an addiction standpoint in the same center where they are getting uh, care for their pre-liver transplant assessment or post-liver transplant assessment, they have better outcomes. Do you remember that alcohol stigma is not only, you know, the alcohol use disorder associated with other comorbidities, chronic pain, depression, anxiety, but also with social issues, such as, you know, many of these people are homeless or they don't have social support or they don't have access to transport. So having multiple visits sometimes is very difficult for these patients. So we need to make uh, things easier. In my practice, I found that if I refer some of these patients to addiction med- medicine, can take months. And sometimes you need to intervene in the right moment because the patient is uh, willing to change at that time point. So I try to start medication by myself and then my colleagues can help uh, advising in the long-term plan, in, in the more behavioral therapy uh, but uh, with the uh, AUD medications, I try to start it myself. So we're making it to the next point. How about some patients who are kind of basically coming fresh to the inpatient services where they're coming in with acute alcoholic hepatitis? They're very, very sick. Of course, they have a little more issues going into the hospital. Are you guys prescribing those medications and those patients coming in? If yes, what would be the right time? When do you decide when is the right timing to start this use disorder medications for those type of patients? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think there is no uh, evidence-based answer for this. But what I do is I try to start it as uh, depending on how sick they were. I mean, if they have a very severe alcohol-associated hepatitis, MEL40, it's probably not the right time. This is, was in the 20s and, and they are doing better. I try to prescribe before uh, discharge. If not, I always do a one-week follow-up after discharge in all these patients. And in the other patient, I try to start AUD medications at that time. These medications are mainly good for reducing craving and maintaining abstinence. So when they are really sick, like MEL40, they don't want to drink. So uh, don't rush in trying to start this medication right away. It's fine if you do it before discharge or even after discharge. But uh, my advice will be put it very clear in the discharge summary, because if not, people will forget. And, and usually the liver thing takes over and everyone forgets about the AUV part. So we know those, there's a small group of patients that will really do poorly. They will actually go on to getting a liver transplant. Are you starting this type of medications in patients who already got a liver transplant, or you rely on psychiatry or other 
services or even you know therapy just before you start a macular transplant? So uh, it will depend. Again, the most important part of the treatment is behavioral therapy. And many of the, our patients going to uh, liver transplant are not able to engage in behavioral therapy because they have hepatic encephalopathy. And AUD medications with advanced liver disease, usually uh, uh, I try to avoid it. However, we assess this patient before transplant to have a plan in the post-transplant because uh, it's not the same that the patient that uh, came with an episode of severe acute alcohol-associated hepatitis that has been drinking because he got divorced three months ago and never drink before compared to a patient that has been drinking for 10 years and barely made it to transplant. That patient will have a much more severe alcohol use disorder and we need to have a, a plan on this patient. And that's another important thing that alcohol relapse is common after transplant between 10, 30%, even 50% in all the studies. I would say it's 30%. How uh, many of them will relapse like in heavy alcohol drinking? It's around 10%. It's alcohol relapse will happen. But alcohol relapse happen even in patients transplanted for other etiologies of liver disease. Yesterday, I was seeing a patient that was transplanted for, for NASH like three months ago and was his birthday and he was drinking alcohol for his celebrate his birthday. And I said, you know, you can't drink alcohol. So we uh, need to acknowledge that this is going to happen, but then we need to be able to identify the red flags. So which patients are at high risk of going back to heavy drinking? And we need to use that information not to punish the patient or decide who is worthy of a liver transplant, but we need to uh, guide our therapy and our interventions Maybe someone will need only pre-transplant addiction therapy. Maybe someone will need pre-transplant, post-transplant, mutual health peer support groups such as Alcoholic Anonymous and plus uh, pharmacotherapy. Maybe they will need all the armamentarium that we have in our clinic, but we need to identify risks. And there is where we are now trying to identify who are the high-risk patients, how we are going to deal with the AUD pre post transplant. Sometimes the risk will be that high that precludes liver transplantation, but we need to be clear and identify that. I think you bring up a great point that I think we, I think both of us should actually emphasize is the stigma of alcoholic liver disease. So alcohol use disorder is a chronic condition, and then I would say it behaves as any other chronic diseases such as high blood pressure or diabetes. I think the punishing is such a great word from Pablo that we should not be punishing our patients because they drink. So we need to find a way they basically understand their chronic disease and then how to deal with it in the future. One more thing that I wanted to ask you, because again, I know you just published a, a review paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, and you went over about the inpatient treatment for acute alcoholic hepatitis, which also we just face fairly regularly. I know there's a lot of medications in the past we used to use, for example, pentoxifilin. Can you comment a little bit what is useful today? Can I, should we only emphasize in steroids? What should we be really aiming for our treatments? And again, for example, I think one more question I ask you, there's a lot of them, is are we doing the discriminative function? Is it better to use male than other studies to compare them? So can you comment on all those things for us? Those are, I think, the key questions regarding uh, severe alcohol-associated hepatitis. The big trial published in New England in 2015, the STOPA trial, basically showed that 
pentoxifiline plus steroids is not better than steroids alone. And so pentoxifiline kind of is uh, not longer used. Then steroids, there was a trend on improving in mortality at one month, but increased the risk of infection, but was basically a negative trial. Then Alex Louvet from France published in Gastroenterology in 2018, a meta-analysis of all the studies and showed that steroids improve survival, but only at one month. So after those two studies was kind of, okay, should we use steroids or not? In which patients? So the first question that we had was, okay, how we should identify these patients. So there is Glasgow alcoholic hepatitis score, is the uh, ABIC score, is the MELT score, is the Madrid score, which one we should be using. So we did a study published in the Red Journal showing that MELT score is the best prognostic score for uh, alcohol-associated hepatitis. And the worst one is Madre. So the first uh, message is uh, we should stop using Madre. Uh, start using MELD is available. We use it for uh, assessment of patients for liver transplantation. It's easily be available. But then the second question was, with, so maybe studies are different because uh, steroids are not for everyone versus no one. Maybe there is a subgroup of patients that benefit from steroids. How we can identify that subgroup of patients? And basically what we did was a global court study and we collected information from more than 3,300 patients. And we found that the sweet spot where a steroid has a maximum benefit, which we describe of at least 20 to 30% survival benefit was with MELT score between 25 and 39. So in easy, if the patient is less than 25, it's probably too healthy to benefit from steroids. If it's more than 40, it's probably too sick to benefit from steroids. So it makes sense that those patients in the sweet spot are those who benefit most from the use of steroids and are those the patients that I use steroids. I must say, though, that steroids is a very bad treatment. I mean, the first trial was New England in 1972, and we are still using it. And we don't know what we are doing. So we need better drugs and are... Uh, uh, at least a couple of clinical trials ongoing, and we are probably going to have better drugs. But for now, that's the sweet spot, which is the contraindication for the use of steroids. I would say that there is two. Number one is infections. And I would rephrase it and say unrecognized infections. Uh, Alex Louvet again showed in a paper in 2018 that if you identify and treat infection, you basically avoid the associated mortality. So what I do for day zero, I do blood culture, urine culture, CRP, everything to try to identify chest ray if they have infection after the 48 hours of the blood culture. There is no rush. So make sure that the patient is not infected. If the patient is infected, first treat infection, wait two, three days until the infection is under control, and then you can start the steroids. And the second one is, is upper uh, GI bleeding. If you have an active ulcer, bleeding is probably wise not to put him on steroids. The other one that has been referred as a contraindication is acute renal, renal failure, but this is not published. But reviewing the data from our cohort, 
We had even patients in, on dialysis that are receiving steroids, and they still benefit from a steroid if they are within the therapeutic window. Right. This is great because, again, I think looking back, again, we don't have a lot of data. You know, the SCOPA trial was, I think, changed uh, what we thought about, for example, the pentoxypathin in the past. I mean, if you look back to data, the acute kidney injury patients were basically we were using uh, pentoxypathin because they were actually in those older studies, we were not able to use steroids. So I think that's a good thing to understand from the, from the new information. So one more question, and I think, uh, I think we can let you go. Um, what happens with those patients who are contraindicated to steroids? So, you know, when would you basically say, okay, there's no infection, is mouse scores a lot more than 40? Is it whether to try it because there's no other really good treatments except transplant? Is when would you think about maybe giving a shot even if your mouse score is really high? That, that's a good question. Will depend on what else you have available. Sometimes you know if you are in a transplant center and your transplant program is doing transplant for severe alhep, I would say that uh, you can maybe avoid the steroids and go for transplant if the melt is really, really high and the patient is really, really sick, because it's very unlikely that they are going to respond to steroids. If not, what I do is sometimes I start steroids and do LIL at day four instead of day seven to have an idea if they are responders or not to steroids. If they are not responders, well, you have one more element for uh, pushing for liver transplantation. And the other um, thing is clinical trials. I, I know that we don't have much now, but we have some. So sometimes clinical trials for patients uh, that are not candidates for steroids or uh, are not responders to steroids may be an option. Some prom promising data is coming from indeed the fecal um, microbiota transplantation trials. Um, and I think uh, that could be an avenue that may be uh, promising in the future, uh, rescuing these patients. Well, you know, there's a lot of information, Juan Pablo. Again, I just really, really love to thank you again for all this information, your time, and hopefully we can have you again here with maybe new information about uh, alcohol and use disorder for the future. I'd like to thank you again for your time and for just being here with us. No, I, I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation and I will be happy to be here again.